can identify with a, a passage like Paul, Romans chapter 7, that uh, speaks of our failures, our inability at times to do that which we should. At times, I will say something, shall we say, inelegantly? I will say something carelessly. It, it might sound, and, and, and what happens? The communication is a wonderful thing, right? Communication means you, you have an idea in your head, and then you speak that idea into words, and those words travel through the air, and they're heard by somebody else who, at the time they hear those words, has other ideas swirling in their head. And so the words you say enter into that mix of other completely different than yours ideas swirling in their heads, right? That's why sometimes you say something and some, somebody else interprets it very differently from what you said. Marriage, anybody? Right? Sometimes is, your, is your, your, your wife or your husband's mind working differently than yours? And when you say something, you don't know how in the world they came up with that, and yet they did, right? Well, sometimes I will say something that I, I have a lot of things going on. I know as much as I talk, you think everything that's in my head is coming out, right? But there's a lot of things going on in my head that I, I, I'm not saying. So sometimes it makes, it's crystal clear to me. But when I'll say it, maybe a little carelessly, maybe leaving some parts out, it comes across to those who hear as maybe harsh, rude, even arrogant. And if I do that, I hope that knowing me, you'll, maybe you'll give me the benefit of the doubt, or you'll come alongside afterwards and say, Bob, you said this or you wrote that, and I, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure what you meant by that, but this is how it came across to me. And that would be a wonderful, hopefully, enlightening time, both for me as well as for you. Let me give you an example. Last week, Pastor, uh, Pastor, I'll, call, I'll say Pastor David Schroeder. He's actually the president of, of Cadence International. But if I say President David Schroeder, then you're really going to be confused. So, so David was here, and he's sharing the word with us. And I love it when David and, David and Joyce come. And um, he, he, he said something at one point about a particular part of John 15. He said, he's, he said, calling on Pastor Bob to do cleanup on John 15 next week. Right? Clean up on aisle 15. Right? So I thought, okay, we'll have a little fun with that. And so in the BP Blast little update this week, I, I, uh, I, I mentioned that he'd said that. And I said, well, maybe it's not so much cleanup in John 15 as it is that we need to put the mess in context. Okay? Then I realized after I sent that, and after the BP blast went out so everybody could read it, that you might easily think by putting the mess in context, by mess I meant David's message. In fact, David could read that BP blast because they do. They read the blast. It's one of the ways they keep up with what's happening here at Brush Prairie. He could read that blast and he could say, okay, well, Bob basically thought my message was a mess and he's going to have to re-put it in context. That's not what I meant. That's not what was in my head. What was in my head was by the mess that we needed to put in context, I meant the disciples' mess. I meant our mess. I mean the mess of our circumstances that seems to contradict the words and the promises of Jesus concerning our life in him. The mess is the waves that Peter can't help but see as he's called by Jesus to step out of the boat onto the water. 
And Peter says, what do you mean? I can't do that. That's the mess. You see, what God has done for us in Jesus and what Jesus is saying to his disciples in this upper room discourse in John 14, 15, especially 16, is that it's more than you know. It's bigger than you realize. It's better than you think. That's John chapter 16. Jesus is saying this. It's going to be great because I'm going so that the, the Holy Spirit can come to you. You are going to do greater things than the works that I did because I'm going to the Father. You are going to be rejoicing. You're going to be singing. You're going to be dancing in the streets. I have overcome the world. Don't be intimidated. Don't worry. The disciples are thinking this. You're going away? How can the Messiah die? We thought you were the Messiah who was going to deliver Israel. And put an end to Rome, and instead Rome ends up putting an end to you. Whatever happened to the kingdom that you had promised? Why would God let them persecute you and us? You say that we know these things, but we don't know any of it. You tell us to abide in you, and yet we're going to be scattered. We're going to be hunted. If you're for us, how can you be leaving us? It's better than we think, but we might not think so, at least not yet. Okay? We see the circumstances. We see the waves. We see the threats. We see the opposition. We see Rome putting an end to Jesus. We see Jesus mocked in society around the world today. And Jesus has a completely different take on what is happening in the midst of the world. Father, would you... Open up your word to us then. Lord, would you help us to see your perspective on our present circumstances? Would you, Lord, by your word, help us to see, use your spirit to open our eyes that we might behold the, the rich realities of your truth and your word as it concerns us and how we live and walk and abide in you in this present mess. We pray that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Something David said last week, and we're going to be, we are in John chapter 16, continuing the upper room discourse, more than you know and better than you think. And even before I start, I want, to, I want to lay out for you, this is what I'm trying to say. And I gave this to you broken down into an outline form, but I want to give it to you in one, one whole statement. So here it is. We abide in Christ, because last week we were told, abide in Christ, and he abides in us. And this is the Christian life. And we'll bear fruit, it'll be wonderful. And all of that is, is so. And yet, how do we do that? We abide in Christ by living in the new covenant where in the new covenant, not merely in our own efforts, but in the new covenant, the Spirit helps us to live God's new reality. He does that by working in us and through us to make the best of time from the worst of times. Let me unpack that last one just a little bit. To make the best of time, this short bit of time that we have, to make the best of that, to redeem that time, even though it occurs within the worst of times and circumstances. I'll, I'll say more about that as we go. But that's where we're headed. We abide in Christ by living in the new covenant. Let's just start there. David had a great insight last week when he mentioned that Jesus is the true vine. 
And by Jesus being the true vine, he said, Jesus is taking Israel's place. The, the, the leaders of Israel would have, would have taken that as an affront, even as they said that he was the good shepherd, rejecting the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel. He says, I am the good shepherd. Now he says, I am the true vine. Israel has not been a true vine. Israel has been a bad vine, bad vine, bad vine, like one of those, one of those vines that creeps into your flower bed and then across your lawn, Right? Israel's not been a fruitful vine. Was Israel a vine at all? Remember Isaiah's song? Isaiah, at his rhetorical best, he breaks out into a song. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He worked and cleared the stones away. The land was fit to till. He put a vineyard in its midst. He planted it with vine in hopes that it would yield good grapes, that he would drink the wine. And yet, instead of good grapes, it brought wild grapes, evil grapes. Instead of righteousness, it brought injustice. Instead of good, it bore fruit of evil and rebellion against him. So what is he going to do? What is my beloved going to do? He says he's going to uproot the vineyard. The... the, um, in, in Jeremiah chapter 2, he also points that, that, in, that Israel was his choicest vine planted by God that it would bear good fruit. The purpose of, of, of God for Israel was that he would use Israel by planting them at the crossroads of civilization. And if you, in the ancient world, that little land bridge between Europe and Asia and Africa, that little land bridge was the center of everything. That's why people kept coming through. The Egyptians were there, and the Assyrians were there, and the Babylonians were there, and the Greeks came by, and the Romans came through. Everybody kept coming through. It's a popular place because it's at the crossroads. It's right in the middle of everything. And that's where God put his people. So his people could be right in the middle of everything and showing what God is like to the peoples of the world that the world may know. That was God's purpose. But they did not bear good fruit. So God's people living under his covenant in the land did not keep that covenant. And so we are told to abide in the vine. We are told that we abide in the vine. We bear fruit by keeping his commandments. And the greatest of those is to love one another as I have loved you. And we're falling short. Where does this go? In fact, it, it raises a question for me. If we're to abide in Christ, and that's how we'll bear fruit, and yet to abide in him is to keep his commandments, that's what he says in verse 10 of chapter 15, and Israel was told to keep his commandments and abide in the land that he had given them and keep his commandments and walk in his will and, and fulfill his ways and... God would bless them, and they did not do that, and so God did not bless them. They were eventually expelled out of the land. Here's my question. How is this new covenant that we are in in Christ, where we're to abide in Christ by keeping his commandments, how is that any different from the old covenant, where they keep his commandments and thus experience God's blessing? How is it any different? What has changed? Old covenant to new covenant. Are we just like Israel? Are we yet, in effect, under law? Even if it's a different law, even if it's a new commandment, it doesn't matter if we can't keep it. You see the problem? You see yourself in that car driving down a Jeep trail, and it isn't going to go well. It isn't going to end well. That's why Hebrews chapter 8 introduces a new covenant. 
He says, if there was no fault, in Hebrews chapter 8 it says, if there was no fault with the old covenant, there would have been no need for a new covenant. And yet, finding fault with them, God establishes this new covenant. That new covenant was prophesied by Jeremiah. That, um, that's what, what the Hebrews 8 writer is quoting now. And then it's also laid out explicitly, this new covenant that God would establish with Israel and with Judah and with us through Jesus. Remember Jesus, that last night that he was betrayed at the, at the table with his disciples. We celebrate this every month. He says, this cup is the what? New covenant. New covenant in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, hold on to that thought. What is it that we're celebrating? There's more than just forgiveness there. Is the, the new covenant passages, well, a couple of them I want to refer to this morning. Hebrews 8, Ezekiel 36, also, Titus 3, I'll throw in Romans 8. Let's get started. Ezekiel 30, 36. Ezekiel 36, I put up here so you don't have to turn to it. What I wanted you to see, and I underlined them, in fact, is the, all the I wills. The old covenant was you must do this and you must do that and you must do that. Think about the first ten commandments, all the things we must do. The new covenant is something different. The new covenant is I will take you from the nations from all the countries, and I will bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will, God says, give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft and tender heart. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God is going to do that in us. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you will be my people. And I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field. I will give you prosperity. Ten times in those few verses in Ezekiel 36, God says, I will. Not you must, but I will. Because the problem with the Old Covenant, the problem with the law of Moses was nothing with the law. The law was not the problem, ever. He says, but finding fault with them, I, he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. God makes a new covenant, not because there's anything wrong with the old one. The Old Covenant, the law, expresses the heart of God perfectly. So Jesus says, and Paul says, the law is holy and just and good. The problem is with me. I can't keep it. I couldn't keep the old commandment. I couldn't keep the new commandment. But God has put his spirit within my heart. The new covenant includes two major pieces. Piece number one is forgiveness. My blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. And the other part of the new covenant, Jesus goes away, he dies, our sin is forgiven, our guilt is removed, so that God can dwell in us by his spirit. There is nothing between us and God. Nothing in the way, nothing that hinders our relationship, our relatedness to God. His spirit now dwells with us. And so Romans chapter 3, or rather Romans chapter 8 Verses 3 and 4, God has done what the law weakened by our flesh, our fallen humanity. God has done what the law could not do in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So, 
Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to these weak, mortal, fleshly bodies. God will give his life in this body by his spirit who dwells in you. That's the promise of the new covenant. I will. And so, do you remember the book of Philippians? A few months ago, um, I guess about a year ago, last fall, we were in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. And that's not telling us to work and earn your salvation. It's work out this reality of what God has done. Why? Because God is at work in you. Both to will, to change our desire, to change our heart, and to do, to enable us with power to live and walk. For God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's why that chapter in Romans chapter 7 that just talks about the things that I would do, I can't. The things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? He, the chapter closes with, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And then it moves into chapter 8. And the unfolding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us who gives life in our weak mortal bodies. That's what Jesus is alluding to in John 16. And Paul has already spelled this out, or the Spirit of the living God has already unfolded this. Paul has already taught this in Ephesus before John ever gets there. This is in their heads so that when Jesus says, says these things, their, their synapses are lighting up. They're making the connections, and we should too that God has set us in his new covenant, and that's the life of the vine that Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 16. So Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his spirit, he saved us. Two ways. By the washing of regeneration, the removal of sin and guilt, and the renewing, the making us new, of the Holy Spirit. Both aspects are true. The forgiveness of our sin, the removal of our guilt, the removal of our shame, and the bestowing of the Spirit's power within us. That's the difference on the day of Pentecost where Peter, who fled from a servant girl, now stands before thousands and boldly proclaims, I do know Jesus. Let me tell you about him. That's what made the difference. It wasn't Peter. Buckling down and trying harder, pressing further down a road he could not travel. No, it was the spirit of the living God in Peter that changed Peter and changed everything. And you and I stand on that same ground. That's the point of John chapter 16. Well, all that said, I probably should read something in John chapter 16, right? Okay, John chapter 16. Let's then, with that reality, let's jump in. Let's, let, let's jump in about verse 7. We'll come back and get the early verses in a minute. But John chapter 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What is he saying? What does he mean when he says, I'm going away? He's going away through the cross. This does not look good. This is not going to end well. That's the disciples' perspective. What do you mean you're going away? We need you. We need the presence of God in our midst. We have had it with Jesus. They're going to have it with the spirit of the living God dwelling within them. The spirit who cannot come to them because their guilt and sin separates them from God unless Jesus goes away by dying for them. 
I think I mentioned before, it's not that there's some weird rule that only one member of the Trinity, God is so big that only one member of the Trinity can be on earth at a time. That's not the thing that's going on here. Jesus goes away by death, which opens up the way so that the Holy Spirit can freely relate with us and be with us and in us. Sometimes awareness of our guilt, the shame of it in our own mind and heart, because of the things we know about ourselves, that causes us to withdraw from God, right? Experience that? You know what I'm talking about. Well, let me ask you this. Is there anything about you that God does not know? All those things you know about yourself, God already knows that. In fact, things that you're not aware of yet or aren't willing to admit to yourself about yourself yet, God already knows that too. And yet, he says, you are my child, you are my delight. Any of that stuff that the enemy would drag up against you and claim in my presence before you, it's all inadmissible because Jesus paid for all of that. His death covers all of that, so there's nothing that keeps you out of my presence. There's nothing that keeps my presence from you. That's the reality. He said, it's good that I go away so that the helper, the advocate, the one who will argue your case, the one who will help you, the one who will encourage you, the one who will challenge and exhort you, all of that is rolled up in this one word. That's why the English Standard Version's helper is just, it really needs help. It's not enough, but, but um, it's, a, it's, it's the word paraclete. But we, that's a word we use all the time, right? Paraclete. It's a parakaleo, means to call alongside, to encourage, to exhort. Think of a coach in a track race. And, the, and uh, well, it's, it's, it's football season. Isn't it wonderful? It's football season again. And think, of, think of Pete Carroll. You've got somebody. You've got DK Metcalf. Oh, he's going to be great this year. He's going to go along. He's going to pull in some. And, and Pete Carroll, the coach, is going to be running as far down the sideline as he can. He's going to be running with him, trying to keep up, encouraging him on, telling him to go. That right alongside, that running with, that's the Spirit. That's one of the word pictures that God is using concerning His Spirit in our life. The one who calls us, but the one who comes along with us. The one who encourages, the one who will even challenge us and push us. He said, you've got this because I've got you. That's the Spirit's words within us. So, where the Spirit helps us live in God's new reality, that he goes away so the advocate can come and he will guide them into all truth. Let's see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass over verses 8 through 11. We're going to come right back to them. Verse 12, he says, I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. How did we get our New Testament? Our New Testament is given to us to explain for us, to unfold for us, to help us to step in and live in this new covenant. So we don't keep thinking like Israel. I need a priest. i got to keep the law. I better bring a sacrifice. We don't do those things. We live with God in a new way. The New Testament explains that to us. The New Testament comes to us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Men wrote as they were born along by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and so it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that men and women of God would be properly, thoroughly, fully furnished for every good work. God has given us this word. Jesus said, I could tell it all to you now, but you wouldn't get it, and you wouldn't keep it. Think of it. What if 
the only Gospels we had, these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what if all that we had in them were the things that the disciples were able to remember? Well, Jesus told them over and over again, um, the Son of Man is going to die, and on the third day, he's going to be raised from the dead. He told them that, and he told them that, and he told them that. Do you think on that third day, do you think on that Sunday, they were looking for his resurrection? Already, they forgot. If the, if the Gospels were written merely based on what the disciples or you or I would be able to remember, they would be very thin books indeed. But it's not. He says, the Holy Spirit, he will bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. The Spirit is going to help these, these servants of Christ to, to write these Gospels. The Spirit is going to work through Paul and James and Jude and John and Peter, and he's going to give us these books, especially that are meant to unfold how we live in this new life that he's given us. That's where it came from. The Holy Spirit will guide you into in all truth. He's going to guide you in, not merely to know everything, but he's going to guide you in that truth, that we live, we walk in God's truth as he's given it to us. You want to know what is the Spirit leading? What is the Spirit saying? One of the important, essential places to start is right here in this book. Spend your prayer time with this book open. Let God's word enliven your prayer time. Yeah, the Spirit will speak to you directly concerning situations and circumstances, but let him shine the light of this word into your life, and it'll make all the difference. He will show us things to come. The things to come are not so much particular events that are going to happen, and we need to study all the details of prophecy, although I love prophecy, and the hope that is set before us is, is strengthening and encouraging. But the things to come that the Spirit is going to show is the things of this new life, this new era, this church age where Jew and Gentile are together in one body, the body of Christ, abiding in Christ, and the life of Christ is lived through us in ways that we would never imagine on our own. That which was to come has now come, and this is where we live. On our own, we have no great ability to follow God's will nor to do God's work. In fact, our hearts are actually bent away from God in rebellion against him. That's the fall that we were born into. But God has given us a new heart. God has given us a new will. God has made a new way for us to walk that new will in by a new means. So Philippians 2, I told you before, God is at work in you both to will and to do. God has not given us a new moral code that we must try to follow, but God has given us a new means, a new way of living. That is the gospel of life in Jesus. By working in us and through us. Let's go back to verses 8, 8 9, 10, and 11. When the Holy Spirit comes, whom God is going to send to us, this is what he's going to do. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. So Jesus isn't there to be the example of humanity rightly related to God any longer. See, and we think about righteousness. We think about doing right, right things rather than wrong things. But what are right things? The right things are the things that are God's will. The right things are the things that reflect the nature and character of God rightly in humanity who is made in God's image. That's how we know right and wrong unless we just make it up on our own. 
So right things or righteousness is, in essence, being the human life, being rightly related to God our Father. Jesus comes and he lives a perfectly rightly related to the Father life. And that now is our opportunity. That now is our privilege that by the Spirit and by the forgiveness and cleansing that is in Jesus, we can live in front of others. A life that is rightly related to God our Father. A life that because it's rightly related to God and His will, it rightly represents God and the likeness of God to people around us in our weak humanity. That's what we're called to do. So the Spirit, he is going to convict the world of sin because they don't believe in Jesus. Don't, don't spend all your time pointing out, well, really don't spend any of your time. They know. Don't spend your time pointing out the things that people do that they should stop doing. Don't manage their sin. Now, as parents, we're, we try to do that, right? And as they get older, it gets harder. And yet, the, the, we can't, and even if you could perfectly manage your kid's sin or get to the point where somehow you have got them managed and sorted, that does nothing about the past. So we, they, they need what we need, as, and, and we, the, the people around us who need Jesus, what they need is not for us to help them better manage their sin. What they need from us is Jesus. So the sin points to Jesus who is God's provision for that. Maybe joining them in admittance of, I struggled with that too. And I found forgiveness in Christ. Christ actually gives me now victory over something I struggled with before. But convicting the world of sin, not because of what they do. That's the interesting point here. But because they don't believe in Jesus. The need is not to have fix them up and clean them up. The need is to point them to Jesus. And righteousness. Righteousness because Jesus goes to the Father and you will see me no longer. So Jesus' life convicted everybody he was around of righteousness. His rightly related to the Father life showed everybody around him that their life was not. And they hated him for it. And they'll hate you for it. But that's okay. Live a life that's rightly related to the Father because your relationship with him is what matters most And our privilege is that of Jesus to live out a life of right relatedness to the Father before the people around us so that they could know something about our God and our Father from us. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world is judged, so everything about this system is judged along with him. Jesus' resurrection is the judgment of the rebellion. Jesus' resurrection, the vindication of Jesus in his resurrection, is the ruin of the rebellion. And the world is put on notice that time is short. This happy rebellion of yours cannot last. So as it gets worse and as the ruin uh, seems to accelerate... Don't be discouraged by that. I know it's troublesome times in which we live, but don't be discouraged by that. Let that simply remind. Jesus says, I told you this before so you wouldn't be discouraged. I told you this before so you could continue to believe, so you wouldn't fall away, so you wouldn't be overwhelmed and think, oh, this can't be true because my expectations are not happening. Jesus said we would have trouble. Jesus said they would persecute. Jesus said they would, in fact, it would be the worst of times. Look at verses 1 to 4. I did promise we would get back to the early verses of chapter 16. Jesus said, I've said these things 
And this comes right on the heel of, again, the end of chapter 15, the promise of his helper, the promise of the advocate, the Holy Spirit coming. I said these things to you to keep you from stumbling, to keep you from falling away, from being discouraged in your faith. He said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Even when the trouble comes, remember, Jesus said it was going to be. Why are we surprised? Why am I suffering like this? Why wouldn't I suffer like this? This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. In fact, our sufferings in our society are nothing like what happened in many parts of the world where Christians are still killed, sometimes by their own families because of their faith in Jesus. That's still happening. That's happening around the world today. That is our reality. And Jesus doesn't always stop it. Oftentimes, he delivers somebody out of that. They will reject you. They will ostracize you. They will sideline you. They will even think they are serving God by killing Christians whom God treasures. In verse 20, Similar story. These will sometimes be the worst of times. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will be asked nothing from me. I say to you, whatever you ask in the, fa- the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. You will weep, lament, sorrow, anguish. You're not going to see him. Where is Jesus? Where did he go? What, why has he left me alone in this circumstance? So it's going to be turned to joy. But he says it's going to be like a woman in childbirth. Now, the ladies, some of the ladies in the room are ahead of us here. You've been there. And we can say, okay, yeah, we get that. We understand that. No, we don't. I, I, I understand enough to know that I don't understand that. And I'm not supposed to say that I understand that. But that, pic, that picture, that image, Paul picks it up. He talks about this whole creation groans and travails up until now, and he's using the same imagery of a woman in childbirth. And, oh, there's joy at the end of it. So we can say, oh, come on, buck up, buttercup. It's going to be great. You're about to have a baby. Those are not the words to say in the midst of labor. Just young husbands giving you a clue here. Okay? It is hard. It is harsh. I, 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 I do not at all intend to make light of the difficulties and the anguish that many of you are right in the middle of it. And yet we know, even in the midst of this, we know the reality of the joy that is set before us, an inheritance that is being being kept for us by God, eternal in the heavens, who is also keeping us for a salvation that's ready to be revealed. And yet we wait. We wait for that glorious day, and we're still in the midst of the trouble and the anguish. And Jesus said we would be. This is our opportunity. This is our moment. This is our hour to live by faith. This is where we will live, trusting him for what we don't yet see. Jesus said, blessed are they who have not seen 
and yet believe. Did you know that in eternity you will not live by faith? We will see him and we will be like him. But now we live by faith, believing God for what we have not yet seen. And that honors him. That glorifies God that he is worthy to be trusted. We can trust him. Down at the end, the verses that Jim read earlier, verse 31, Jesus answered them. Oh, the disciples. Okay, well, Jesus has just said, you know, I'm, let me speak very plainly here. You guys are, you know, a little slow on the uptake. Let me be really clear what I'm saying here. I came from the Father, and I've come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world, and I'm going to the Father. And so the disciples say, oh, great. Why didn't you say so before? Now we get it. Now we understand. Perfect. All right. And then Jesus says this in verse 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Do you now believe? There will be times, there will be moments that we ourselves will be in anguish over our own unfaithfulness and lack of confidence in God our Savior. We will be embarrassed of ourselves and that will cause us to want to pull back from him. And yet he said, yet I am never alone because the Father is with me. I have said all these things to you so that in me you may have peace In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Take heart, I have overcome the world. You will have tribulation. Reinterpret that. I have overcome the world. In the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the anguish, in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the loss, in the midst of the tribulations, in the midst of troubles pressing in from others, in the midst of troubles that are just broken life in a broken world, Remember that Jesus also said, I have overcome the world. And we long for the fullest manifestation of that. But right now, is it our privilege by his spirit to live out his life in the midst of the brokenness, which is exactly what Jesus himself did when he lived a human life among us. Jesus has done more for us than we know. It's actually better than we yet perceive. Jesus has been through the kind of ache that our heart experiences, and you are not alone. God has left himself with us, dwelling even in us. That's why Jesus says, I and you and you and me and, and I and the Father and you and me and the Father that he has invited us into this close relationship that the Trinity has always had among itself. And they all belong together. And what God has done for us in Jesus is he made us belong there too. And so his spirit belongs with us. That is this life that he has given us. This is a promise that you can live for God. You can be used for God even in the midst of this broken life. Let's pray. Father, we're going to have to hold on to that and claim that. Lord, it doesn't always feel like it for us. We don't know how we can. We don't know how we can go down a particular trail that you have set before us. It's not the road we would have adventurously chosen. 
And yet, Lord, we will trust you. Father, we'll trust you then to walk in your will and in your way and to even be willing to answer to others about the hope that you've given us. When they want to know why we're different, why we see things different, why we don't have the same worry, how it is that we could be at peace, Lord, give us the courage and the clarity to know how to answer in speaking of our faith in your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Father, we're willing to trust our lives into your, your will and your way. Even that means, like Madison or Tasha, going where you would have us to go. Certainly every day it means doing what you'd have us to do. Father, it means trusting what you give us back to you for your use. It means, even in this offering this morning, it means trusting you in this prayer request that we can make our needs known to you and you do hear us. We can ask in your name, knowing that whatever we ask in your name, you will answer. So, Father, help us to trust you. It's as simple as that. Help us to trust you in ways that live out Christ's life in our life that, that glorify you to people around us this week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.